Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome back to the Healthy Gut Podcast for Season 2. It's so exciting to be bringing you more fascinating interviews and information on all things SIBO with leading experts on gut health. We've had a little bit of a hiatus since the last episode aired at the end of 2017. And during this time, I've been really busy finding just some fascinating people to bring back to the show so that I can continue to share knowledge, information and education with you, the SIBO patient and practitioner, so that you can feel empowered and inspired to keep going with your particular journey. I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to the podcast in season one. It's been just absolutely fantastic uh, having you join me for season one and I really look forward to having you join me with season two. And just to share some of the great feedback that I've had from the listeners, we had Cara F13 leave a message just saying that this podcast excites me greatly. Awesome, Cara. You gave us five stars as well. She says, thank you for having a podcast so specific as gut health. I am a gut health thirsty individual and I'm thrilled by your valuable content. I loved listening to the interview about mindset with Kristen. Reminders, check in with the role you give yourself. Is it healthy or unhealthy? If the people around you are still stuck in claiming you're the sick person you used to be, stake your claim of the new. Might need to remind people as well as yourself about the new healthy person you have become. Cheers to celebrating new healthy ways of living. Thanks, Cara, for just taking the time to write that down. And it's so true. What messages are we giving ourselves? Now, I've got lots to update you on, everybody, so I'll try and keep it quick. But one of the biggest updates for you since season one finished is I went and retested for SIBO because I noticed that I was getting some symptoms again. Bloating and constipation were the main things that I was experiencing. And rather than um, letting it progress and thinking, is it SIBO? Is it not SIBO? I bit the bullet and I went and redid a SIBO test. And lo and behold, my SIBO has returned. Now, since I first started my journey in 2015, I've done so much work on trying to understand why I developed SIBO in the first place. And what I have discovered in recent times is that adhesions are one of my really big underlying causes. I have been um, treated by Alyssa Tate, who's a visceral mobilization therapist here in Australia. And we've since learned that my abdominal cavity is absolutely full of adhesions. My poor little small intestine, as well as so many other organs, are just completely wrapped up and twisted and stuck in these adhesions. So it's no wonder that I relapsed. 
If you're wondering what adhesions are, I really encourage you to go back and listen to episode 25 uh, with Larry and Belinda Wern from Clear Passage Physical Therapies. And they were the people that I first heard speak that even alerted to me to the concept of adhesions. I've also interviewed Alyssa Tate in, in season one. And so that's episode 33, and she talks about visceral mobilisation and also chronic pelvic pain. She specialises in treating women with pelvic disorders and dysfunction, as well as adhesions. So if you'd like to go and learn more about what I'm now experiencing and, and treating, go and listen back to those two episodes. So I'm going to be sharing with you guys how I'm going with my journey. Uh, you can always follow me on my Instagram account and also Facebook pages to see how I'm going and I do a lot of vlogs on my YouTube channel so you can keep up to date with what I'm doing. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to those people that made a contribution to the Healthy Gut podcast in season one. Uh, in season one I fully funded the podcast so that was all coming out of my savings and I did put calls out to people to say you know if you'd like to keep the podcast going then uh, if you are able to make any kind of contribution that is so welcome. So a big thanks to Abby, Robin, Elise, Lorraine, Hartmut, Terry, Katrina, Glennis, Jackie, Siobhan, Karen and so many more so many people just made such wonderful contributions to the podcast in season one. Now, I was hoping that I could keep this podcast advertisement free or sponsorship free, but I'm really sorry to say, guys, that's just not the case. It does cost quite a lot of money to bring this podcast to you every single week and to keep it free so that you don't have to spend a cent to listen to it. So this season, there will be some advertisements and I have got some amazing sponsors who have come onto the show to help keep this podcast on the air. So do support them, guys. They are keeping this podcast going for another season and, uh, and I'm sure that you'll find the information that they're able to share with you really useful. In season two, you've got the opportunity also to get exclusive members-only content. If you would like to get access to the full transcription from every single show, plus members-only specials and content and other great things, all you need to do is sign up to become a Healthy Gut podcast member. To do so, just head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast and add your name and email address and you will become a member. So it's absolutely free to become a member. And then you will receive an email the moment a show is released, including the full transcript and any special offers that I can offer you that, that episode. So you will not only never miss an episode, but you will be able to read along as you listen to the podcast. And I know this is really beneficial, particularly for those days when we're just dealing with brain fog and we just can't take the information in. Another really exciting thing I've got for you guys for season two is the opportunity for you to call in and ask me a question. I think this is really cool and I can't wait to take your questions, guys. So this is your opportunity not only to hear yourself on your favorite SIBO podcast, but also have the opportunity to have your question answered by myself or potentially one of my special guests. 
Now, I know how valuable my SIBO coaching program is for my clients, so I want to share some of my handy hints and tips on how to live well with SIBO with you, as well as my five key pillars to health, awareness, nutrition, movement, mindset and lifestyle. So by calling in and leaving me a message, this is your opportunity for you to have me answer those questions for you. It's completely free to leave me a voice message. You can do it any time of the day or night. All you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast and click on the button that says leave a voice message for the Healthy Gut podcast. You just do it via my website. It's completely free and then it will send me a message with your podcast and you might just hear yourself on your favorite podcast. I can't wait to share that with you. So make sure you do that uh, today guys or very soon so that you have the opportunity to get on the show. Coming up this season, we've got some amazing guests. I am thrilled to be able to announce that Dr. Mark Pimentel, the king of SIBO, is coming onto the show to talk all things SIBO with me. We've also got Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis, who'll be talking about functional gastroenterology, and Dr. Satish Rao, who's going to be joining us to talk about SIBO and CFO, which is fungal overgrowth. And we're talking about diet and nutrition with dietitian Kelly Isaacson from Cedars Sinai and so many more guests. Like with season one, the show will air on a Tuesday morning Australian time or that's Monday afternoon slash evening in the US. Make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen to the show so you don't miss an episode. And finally, don't forget to tell your friends and family about the show. I hear from people from all around the world who tell me that this podcast has helped them learn so much about their gut. So if you know anybody who has irritable bowel syndrome, SIBO, or any other gut-related issue, tell them to check out the Healthy Gut Podcast. I'm sure they won't be disappointed. So let's get into today's show, guys. Sorry, that was quite a long introduction, but I've missed you and I've had so much to catch up on with you. Today, we're joined by Dr. Terry Walls. She's a clinical professor of medicine and best-selling author of The Walls Protocol. She's recognized as an expert in nutrition and wellness and has inspired people all over the world to transform their health through diet and lifestyle. You will be fascinated by the story of her recovery from multiple sclerosis, which saw her not only coming out of her tilt-recline wheelchair within 12 months, but riding her bike 29 k's. Dr. Walls understands how diet and lifestyle may play a big role in our most common chronic health problems, much bigger than you can imagine. From the mitochondria in your cells to the bacteria in your gut, the neurons to the neurons in your brain. Today's show is absolutely fascinating and I have had the pleasure 
of meeting Dr. Terry Walls as she's here in Australia at the moment. And guys, make sure you keep listening to the end of the podcast because I have a very special offer just for you. So make sure you keep listening once my interview with Dr. Terry Walls concludes because I hate for you to miss out on this special offer. So without further ado, here we go, guys. Season two is back on the airwaves and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Terry Walls. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I have been a long fan of your work and just so inspired by uh, the changes um, to your own health. You're, you're a doctor, but also someone who has experienced firsthand what it's like to be absolutely debilitated with an illness. And for those listeners, and I'm not sure that there would be many out there, but there may be someone out there that doesn't know who you are. I'd love for you to tell my listeners a little bit about your story and your own experience with um, with very debilitating illness and, and how you came to be uh, doing some amazing things in the world today. So I'm a internal medicine doc working at uh, a large university. And uh, at that point, I, I was really very skeptical of a complementary alternative medicine. I really believed in the newest drugs and technology. Uh, and then in 2000, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis uh, on the basis of a history of uh, visual dimming 13 years earlier uh, and a new problem with a weakness in my left leg. Uh, I had a big workup with uh, abnormal lesions in my spinal cord, abnormal spinal fluid, uh, and was diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS. Uh, and I knew I wanted to treat my disease aggressively using the newest drugs, the best people. So I did some research and found that the Cleveland Clinic was uh, one of the best MS centers in the country. I went there, saw their best people, took the newest drugs. And still within three years, my disease had uh, progressed to the point uh, that I needed a tilt recline wheelchair. And my disease was now in what's called the secondary progressive phase. At that point, there'd be no more spontaneous uh, improvements or remission. And uh, that's uh, when I started on uh, metazantrone. I continued to decline. Then I was placed on uh, the new biologic drug, Tizabri. I continued to decline. Uh, then I switched to Celsept. I continued to decline. Um, now, I'll back you up for a moment. What my Cleveland Clinic doctors had told me about the paleo diet in 2002, two years after diagnosis, when I was still walking around, and um, I, I read uh, Dr. Cordain's papers, got his book, and decided that there was a rationale for what he was proposing. And so I, after a lot of prayer, because I'd been a vegetarian for 20 years, I went back to eating meat. And I gave up all grains, all legumes, all dairy, but it continued to decline. I stayed with it because I figured it might take several years uh, to repair all the damage. Um, you know, I, then I needed the wheelchair, then I was on mitoxantrone, then I was on Tizabri, then I was on Celsept. And it was clear that the best drugs were not stopping my slide into a bedridden and quite possibly uh, demented life. I also had a lot of MS-related pain 
that was not well controlled. Uh, and so I was beginning to realize I may end up with refractory uncontrolled pain. Uh, and so uh, that was when I began uh, reading the science uh, and I would ultimately start reading uh, basic science, um, animal model studies uh, uh, focused on vitamins and supplements for MS and uh, other diseases with shrinking brains like Huntington's, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, ALS, and uh, would figure out that mitochondria were a big driver in uh, other diseases. And so I would develop a vitamin cocktail to support my mitochondria. And this slowed my decline, but it did not lead to recovery. Uh, by the summer of 2007, um, I could not sit up anymore. I was either in bed or in a zero-gravity uh, recliner. I could walk short distances using two walking sticks, and by short, like 10 yards. Um, I could drive 10 minutes to work, uh, but that was getting really quite tiring. I had severe fatigue by 10. I was beginning to lose my keys, my phone. Uh, brain fog was getting to be a problem. Pain was more and more difficult to manage. Um, my chief of staff told me he was putting me in the traumatic brain injury clinic and I wouldn't have residence. I'd be seeing patients directly, and I knew that was a job I probably could not do. And I'd be taking on those new responsibilities uh, six months later uh, in the middle of uh, January. Uh, and so, you know, that was a sort of a uh, upsetting time. But, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Um, it was at that point that I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine and took their course on neuroprotection, had a longer list of vitamins and supplements that I was added. Uh, and then in the uh, very end of 2007, I had another big aha moment, like, what if I took my list of vitamins and supplements and I restructured my paleo diet to stress these micronutrients. So I'd take, I'd take it actually several more months of research and the Linus Pauling Micronutrient Institute was very helpful for me to figure that out. I, and so uh, December 26th, I started this new way of structuring my paleo diet. Yeah, and within three months, um, you know, I was, I was in the traumatic brain injury clinic and to my surprise, I was able to do that clinic, and it was not exhausting me. Uh, at the end of three months, I was walking with a cane. Um, at six months, I was walking throughout the um, VA hospital without a cane. At nine months, I did a bike ride around the block the first time in uh, probably six years. I'm crying. My wife's crying. My kids are crying. Uh, and that's really when I began to... Uh, think that, well, who knew how much recovery might be possible? Uh, and then at um, 12 months, I was able to do a 20-mile bike ride with my family. Uh, and uh, by this time, I have, uh, you know, really shifted the way I'm thinking about disease and health. I've shifted my focus from uh, being focused on finding and using the latest drugs to talking to my patients about 
the quality of their diet and focusing more on diet and lifestyle interventions. I, and of course, it would uh, change the focus of my clinical research. Um, and, you know, it really would change uh, everything. I think it's a really important point that you make there around um, changing the focus. And I speak with a lot of people uh, all over the world who have chronic digestive issues. And a, and a common thing people say is, why can't I just take a pill? Why is there not just one drug I can take that's going to fix everything? Um how did you know it must have been quite an interesting experience for you as a doctor to go through that transformation around uh, being yeah. more conventional with your therapy and your treatment with patients and yourself to then go, whoa, our nutrition actually is really fundamental. You know, um, drugs can be very helpful if you have an infection and we're going to give you an antibiotic that targets that particular infection, and then we can resolve that problem. Everything else uh, is uh, probably far more tied to uh, the interaction of your genes and the environment, which means one pill isn't going to fix the environmental factors that contributed to your developing that health problem. I, and so, I, I mean, I, I get it now. Uh, a pill will work well for an acute problem related to an infection. For everything else, it, it it's going to be very important that you address the environmental factors that contributed to why you got yourself into that health uh, compromise. Before we dive into your nutrition principles, I'd like to just talk about the role of the digestive system or the gut and um, autoimmune diseases uh, or chronic illness um, and really how they're connected in, in your opinion. Well, um, Alessio uh, uh, Fasano uh, yeah, did some uh, brilliant work uh, to identify something called zonulin which is the uh, gate that opens up um, the, uh, the channels that will let fluid into and out of the intestinal lumen into the bloodstream. And so if the gates are wide open, um, you have terrible diarrhea and you're losing uh, your intravascular volume and you poop out your, your fluids, and die very quickly. That's the cause of cholera. And he was actually studying cholera at the time that he discovered this gate. Um, if the gate's partly open, um, you can leak incompletely digested uh, proteins from within your uh, back, your intestines into your bloodstream. And uh, also coming along will be uh, pro. Uh, fragments from the bacteria as well. So when these uh, protein fragments get into the bloodstream, our immune cells will say, that amino acid sequence is too big to be uh, the food particles because we normally digest our protein all the way down to amino acids. So when you have these uh, small protein fragments, our immune cells will interpret those protein fragments either as uh, microbes that must be attacked or um, other 
uh, 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 toxic compounds that have to be neutralized. Uh, and so they'll make a very vigorous immune response. If that uh, incomplete, um, incompletely digested uh, protein happens to be a, a fragment from gluten or a fragment from casein, so these are the protein in grain, the protein in dairy, depending on your genetics, I will have a very vigorous immune response, which revs up all the immune responses in my bloodstream, which then sets the stage over several years to develop an autoimmune process. So uh, uh, it's currently being studied uh, in a number of basic scientists, uh, and say more clinicians are now thinking that leaky gut is, is that first step that needs to happen to develop an autoimmune disease. And the leaky gut is that zonulin uh, gate being stuck partially open. Not open like uh, so severe that you have cholera, but open just enough that uh, these proteins are getting into our bloodstream when they should not be. And it's creating uh, confusion in our immune cells. And so in terms of testing for leaky gut, um, you know, how would you go about testing to see if someone does have leaky gut? Well, there are uh, uh, some tests where um, you can uh, drink a uh, compound that will have uh, two kinds of sugars uh, involved uh, in them and then uh, measure it, uh, the appearance of these sugars in your urine Sometimes they'll uh, label it so you can uh, detect uh, this with a breath test. Uh, and they look at um, uh, the ratio of these two sugars to know, uh, is there leakiness in the, yeah, in the gut? There are some measures that measure uh, the zonulin damage directly uh, with a blood test or a uh, test in the stool. Um, so we're getting more sophisticated uh, uh, tests for that. Um, another way that some people will look at, look for that is to uh, do some uh, antibody tests for uh, evidence of developing um, an immune response to foods. And if you are responding that you have and you're making antibodies to many kinds of food proteins, that's uh, a marker that you have a very leaky gut and lots of food proteins are getting out into your blood, uh, creating uh, this vigorous response. So, so there are a variety of ways of doing that. Um, and it depend on, uh, depends on your clinical symptoms, uh, which test your uh, practitioner may want to recommend. And that's my next question. How would somebody know if they do have leaky gut? Well, you know, I would say uh, some of the uh, uh, symptoms that the patient may experience uh, may have to do with uh, some bloating um, uh, 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 after eating. Uh, you're more likely to have uh, bloating gas. Um you're more likely to have uh, problems with incompletely digested food showing up uh, in the stool. Um, 
And frankly, if you have an autoimmune problem, you probably have a leaky gut. If you have been uh, taking a diet uh, very, very high in sugar, uh, you're more likely to have a yeast overgrowth that can add to a leaky gut. If you've been uh, taking uh, medications that uh, have a lot uh, daily use of aspirin or the aspirin-like compounds such as ibuprofen, uh, naproxen, uh, naproxen, so we call those uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, that that will make for a greater probability of a leaky gut. If you are um, drinking a lot of alcohol, uh, that can uh, make for a greater probability of a leaky gut. So given that a leaky gut is obviously such a kind of critical factor in terms of future development of autoimmune conditions or other conditions, what should we be doing? Should we be running out and getting tested for leaky gut? Should we be addressing our nutrition? And, I, and I'm looking forward to diving into your nutrition yeah. principles. Um, what, what's the well, approach we should take? You know, um, my clinical practice uh, for 17 years was at the Veteran Affairs Hospitals here uh, in Iowa City. Uh, and that meant that the people I was take, taking care of were veterans. Uh, typically, uh, these were people who had very limited resources, uh, living on uh, with uh, their disability income. So money is very tight. And the VA um, did not offer any kind of advanced testing for leaky gut or functional medicine type of stuff. And so I learned how to take care of all this stuff uh, based on this old-fashioned thing uh, known as taking a history, doing a physical exam, and uh, we did extremely well. Uh, <laughs> so radical. <laughs> you know, it's very radical. You talk to your patients, you do an exam, and we make some uh, simple recommendations. Uh, and my uh, presumption is that uh, – most people with an autoimmune condition have a leaky gut. Uh, and given the types of scenarios that I just described, uh, people uh, you know, with alcohol, uh, aspirin use, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug use, um, people who had been on acid, stomach acid-lowering medication, I assumed all of them had leaky guts that would have to be fixed. And so we spent the first month really attending to what were all the nutritional strategies they could take to heal their leaky gut and improve their gut digestion. And I, I would say the vast, vast majority of folks had uh, were, could perceive a tremendous benefit. So let's talk about what some of those uh, nutritional principles are and what somebody who's listening to today's um, podcast could perhaps go away and, and look at what they might be able to implement in, in their nutritional protocol. Okay, so uh, step number one is um, you want to take away the things that are uh, contributing to uh, overgrowth of yeast. So uh, sugar, white flour, uh, kinds of products. So get rid of the sugar, 
replace flour-based products with vegetables. And in the beginning, I uh, favor uh, cooked vegetables, uh, soups, and stews. I favor a lot of bone broth. The reason I like uh, bone broth is that it has a lot of uh, glycine, um, which is an amino acid that's very, very helpful and used by the intestinal uh, lining cells uh, to help them uh, do the repair work. So, uh, and they also have a lot of glutamine, which is another key amino acid that is necessary uh, uh, for the uh, intestinal cells to repair themselves. So lots of bone broth. Um, and then I want them to have uh, plenty of vitamin A, vitamin D, and uh, omega-3 fatty acids. So cod liver oil is very good for all of that. It has some vitamin A that's pre-made, has some vitamin D in there, and it has the omega-3 fats. Another thing, another nutrient that's really helpful for healing the gut is zinc. And you can get zinc in oysters, mussels, uh, liver. Uh, and so we teach people how to make, uh, how to cook with uh, those three foods and teach them how to uh, make liver and onions, liver pate. Um, and I uh, try to have them have liver, oysters, mussels uh, twice a week uh, for that. And that can be quite challenging for some people, <laughs> eating organ meats. Um, you know, I've... they can be. And um, I have to remind everyone that the food we eat is all a culturally acquired taste. Uh, and so what, what uh, we'd like to do is we would uh, fix this food uh, for our vets. We have little cooking classes, and they'd be quite surprised uh, that uh, organ meats uh, could be uh, very tasty. Usually people could either enjoy the uh, oysters, uh, mussels, uh, liver pate, um, and having some guacamole, liver pate, and hot sauce uh, wrapped up on a kale leaf or uh, on a sliced uh, rutabaga um, or uh, in some celery stalks. Uh, people would be quite surprised at how tasty they were. I mean, you know, if my teenage kids could bring their fr friends over and serve this stuff to them and have their fellow teenage friends like them, they, they really can be made in a very delicious way. Now, if people can't, can't get themselves to think of that, uh, then they certainly can get organ meat capsules but that will be more expensive than just learning how to uh, get uh, the uh, chicken livers and and making some liver pate. And it's actually not that difficult. I I've, I make my own chicken liver pate. Uh, it's great because you know exactly what's going into it, and it's delicious. And once it's all mushed up, it doesn't feel like. Livers. That's right. <laughs> and I love the flavor of pate, so I, I really enjoy it. And you put some guacamole, uh, some avocado, uh, some hot sauce on top, 
and a little heat and and uh, avocado, and you have no idea that you just managed to uh, get the pate in. Another th- another thing that we teach is you uh, put it in, uh, blend it up, uh, and you put it in a soup, a small amount. You have no idea, and particularly if you add a little uh, heat to the soup uh, with it, it'd be either horseradish, ginger, or hot peppers, that will mask the flavor. Or you could put it in a uh, taco blend or a, uh, a tomato sauce blend so that you mask it with other foods. And if 10% of the meat is your liver, I, I would keep it a small amount. Start you know very small that where you're adding in uh, the ground up liver. So you can just gradually sneak it in. And I would never tell your family that you've just added liver to the the meat dish that you were serving. I, uh, and you know when when we have our cooking classes, we would do that. We would uh, add in uh, liver uh, to the tacos, uh, serve it, uh, and our patients would go like, "Well, you're right. It's delicious. We had no idea." Mm-hmm. I do that with my spaghetti bolognese sauce. I put some chicken livers in that and I have a um, a great meatloaf recipe. Let's put a little bit of chicken liver in that and it's all ground up. You would have no idea. No one knows that I'm putting it in there except for me. And everyone's like, oh, this is the most delicious <laughs> meatloaf I've ever eaten. And I'm like, well, little do you know what's in there. <laughs> you know, uh, and um... – yeah, there, here in, in the U.S., there are a number of companies that have uh, liverwurst. Um, uh, that is a combination of sausage with some uh, liver organ meats that have been ground into it. Uh, and again, very tasty. You'd have no no idea that liver is part of the recipe. Um, mm. You talk about um, high sulfur foods as being something that uh, you like people yeah. to to eat. So let's talk about them. Sure. So uh, sulfur is used in the detoxification pathways, uh, and here in the U.S. and I imagine it must be true in Australia as well that many of us have accumulated uh, chemical pollutants from the internal and external uh, chemicals that we encounter in our work life uh, and in our home life that uh, we store in our fat. And if you have a chronic health challenge, likely inefficient clearing of your toxins is part of why you developed your uh, chronic health challenge. Uh, and so some of the things that we can do to make your enzymes that manage and get rid of those toxins more efficient and more effective is uh, having you eat more of the cabbage family vegetables and onion family vegetables. That is why... Um, in my vegetable categories, uh, the sulfur-rich vegetables, cabbage family, onion family, are a big part of the protocol. Uh, and so my goal is to have everyone have uh, three cups in that sulfur category. And for my metric friends, they, they want to know, like, how many grams is that? And I say, I don't really know. But here, here's, the, here's a simple way to think about it. If you have your dinner plate and you cover it up with your raw vegetables so you can't see any of the bottom of the dinner plate, that's three cups. 
and it's measured raw. So you cook all of that. It'll be about half that amount. Uh, and that's how many sulfur vegetables I want you to eat. Garlic is so potent that you only need six garlic cloves to the equivalent of three cups of, of uh, garlic. Right. Now, what, what um, do you do with people that do have intolerances or sensitivities? Um, because onion and garlic and the, sure. and the vegetables in those families seem to be, they cause people some enormous problems. So now this is true. Um, so yeah, I'll step back for a moment. I recommend nine cups of vegetables, you know, three cups of greens, three cups of the sulfur-rich, three cups of deeply pigmented. And that's the public health message. And I always say you need to work with your primary care team to personalize this because we are all unique with our own unique uh, set of enzymes and our unique microbiome. So there will be some people whose their enzymes involving sulfur metabolism will be different and they may be less efficient. So their body may tell them, that if they try to eat the three cups of sulfur, they don't feel well. I, and, or if they eat the three cups of greens, they're having too many loose stools. That's why I say you always have to work with your personal physician and to help you interpret this so that if it's a problem for you, yes, you, you back down and you pay close attention to figure out what is the dose of garlic uh, the, you know, the sulfur-contained vegetables that works for you. I also make the observation that as your microbiome changes, you may discover that, say, when you first tried to implement the WALS protocol, you couldn't tolerate all that sulfur. But perhaps a year into it, you'll have shifted your microbiome. And now, in fact, you do a much better job of tolerating a higher dose of sulfur. So th these things can change over time. They can. And I, I myself, uh, when I first discovered I had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, I was becoming quite problematic with the higher FODMAP um, fructan and fructose foods. Uh, but these days I can eat everything. There's very few plant-based foods that I can't eat, uh, which is wonderful because it gives me so much greater diversity than that I had, say, three and a half years ago when I first discovered this thing called SIBO. Um, in terms of the nine cups, is that per day? Is that per meal? I know people listening will be like, nine cups? What? How? <laughs> in what time frame? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. When, when I talk to my vets, they go like, is that per month? <laughs> Oh, you know, God, we'd laugh. I'd, I'd laugh so hard I thought I'd pee my pants sometimes. Uh, <laughs> it's it's nine cups per day. Uh, that's the target. Now, I'm a very tall lady. I'm six foot tall, and most of my patients were men. I, and, and I really wanted to have a big enough number, so I was filling them up with things that were good for them. Yeah, And so my advice would be, look, I want you to have the uh, protein that's the equivalent of two palms worth of protein, and then vegetables, and that's what you eat. So start with nine cups, you know, three platefuls of vegetables, uh, a plateful of greens, a plateful of sulfur, a plateful of color. And you can sort of space out how you want to do that. If it's 
three different meals, if it's two meals, if it's one meal. And if you're really petite, and, and we do have some, in my clinical trials, we've had some very petite ladies, you know, four foot 10. That poor lass was certainly not doing nine cups of vegetables. You know, I, I think she was doing five to six. And my advice to her was just eat proportionally what you can between the green, sulfur, and color categories. No need to stuff yourself. And if you're hungry, you know, to my men, because I have some guys, you know, really big guys, I said, you could have more than nine cups, but keep eating proportionately the green, sulfur, color. Uh, And if you're doing heavy manual labor, yes, you might need more than uh, two palm-sized servings of meat. Mm. And what about the diversity of foods? Obviously, we've talked about greens, sulfur foods, and um, deep pigmented color. Within those categories, are, there, are we then also aiming to have the broadest variety or the most number of different variety of plants within each of those three categories? Our ancestors um, would have been eating uh, 200 different plant species per year. And I forgive me, I've forgotten how many different animal species we have in a year. It's not quite 200, but it's, it's certainly more than two. Uh, and so my advice to folks is it's, it's a very fun thing to do. Sort of keep track of how you're doing on the different kinds of plants you eat. Uh, and so the first thing we do in our first class is, okay, so how many different vegetables do you eat? And you know, it would not be uncommon to have only three or four or maybe five. And so they would have the conversation, well, the goal is to get 200 different plant species in a year. Uh, and you can do this with teas, with spices, uh, and keep coming in telling me how many different plant species you're up to. That helps people have a little more fun as a family and encourages them to be more willing to say like, Here's a new a new vegetable that we haven't we've never had. We ought to try, figure it out, uh, and expand their um, taste and awareness. Uh, incredibly helpful. I I also talk about you want to have things that are grown and that are local because the shorter the time between harvest and consumption, the more um, uh, nutrition you'll have in that uh, uh, meal because you, you tend to lose uh, some of the uh, antioxidant activity, you tend to lose some of the vitamin activity uh, the longer you get from harvest time to consumption time. And what about choosing organic produce over just what you can buy in the supermarket that's non-organic? Sure. Should we be really putting a focus on organic produce? Well, I want to remind everyone that my clinical practice, you know, for 17 years uh, were people who didn't have money, people who were, had uh, very limited uh, financial resources. And so we had talked about, you do the best that you can. So sometimes my folks, they're starting out with their canned foods and then they're working up, uh, uh, to uh, frozen foods, 
Uh, we talk about, yes, organic would be great um, if you can figure out how to do that financially. My vets taught me that, you know what, many of them figured out how to, how to switch to eating primarily organic uh, by the end of uh, working with me for uh, three months. They were gardening. Uh, they were going to the farmer's market. Uh, they were walking around to the various farmers and saying, you know, if I come back at the very end of the farmer's market, what's the best price you can give me to take all of the rest of the produce that you have here? And so, I mean, these were very, very sharp uh, folks. Uh, and they were hunting and they were fishing and they were foraging. Um, so they were figuring out how to get more organic in. But absolutely, uh, you certainly can still recover um, even if you're doing conventional food. Now, if you do conventional food, you are taking in you know, the pesticide load uh, along with the food. And so it will take longer for you to clear all these the, the, the pesticides and pollutants that you've got stored in your own fat. It will take longer if you're still eating conventional food but you will still recover. If you can figure out how to accommodate more organic food into your uh, groceries, that will help you out. The one thing that I think, uh, I mean, I, I really stress is you need to learn how to cook. Unless you're incredibly wealthy and that you can buy organic food and have your own personal chef come prepare it for you, my, I mean, the vast, vast majority of us are going to have to learn how to how to cook and learn how to prepare this food at home. And sadly, uh, uh, way too many people have either never learned or have forgotten how to prepare food. I think it is really sad, I'm, and I'm such a passionate um, foodie, having now written several cookbooks for um, the SIBO folk out there because there were none when I first discovered I had SIBO. Um, but one of the things that, that I find so? interesting is would – you, Would you mail a couple of your cookbooks to me? I'd love to see oh, them. Of course. Yes, of course. Um, one of the things that I find uh, interesting is – because we have a, there's a real focus on, you look at what's on TV at the moment, and there's a huge number of uh, cooking shows and people, I think, are fearful that they have to make their food look like a, um, you know, Michelin star restaurant where it's, you know, the most beautiful creation ever put on a plate. You don't need to do that. It can be really simple. Good food doesn't need to be complex and take forever you can yeah. you know steam some vegetables uh you can grill or you can poach it doesn't need to be complex and so I think that um you know you teaching people how to cook I have um my cookbooks and my YouTube cooking show uh showing people that it can be really simple um helps to break down those fear barriers um how do you work with people that come to your clinic and go uh, Dr. Walls, I've just, I just don't know how to cook. I hate cooking. This is not for me. I, I really don't want to do it. I'm used to eating takeout. Um, how do you help them get over that initial barrier? Well, the, uh, the process that we have is uh, the very first uh, referral into me is for introductory lecture, where I tell my story, talk about functional medicine, 
uh, and then uh, uh, let them know that we have a couple of options. One is to say, this is too hard. I'm, I'm just, it's not the right time. I can't make this change. Another one is to say, I would like to make the change gradually, and they can meet with the dietitian one-on-one. And the other is that I will at least go gluten-free, dairy-free, and ramp up the vegetables. They can come to uh, the group classes with us. At the group class, uh, the first class uh, is a half-day class, two hours with me, and there's uh, eight people uh, that come through at a time. Uh, and we do an initial intake uh, where we have uh, talk about what were all the environmental exposures and help prioritize what we'd like them to do. The next two hours is with the dietitian who uh, makes uh, cooked greens, a green smoothie, and uh, they, they eat that together and realize like, A, it, it was very fast, takes hardly any time. Uh, it's delicious. Uh, both those things are, are quite delicious. Uh, and then they reimagine what breakfast will look like, what lunch will look like, and what meals will look like. Uh, and we have a series of cooking classes. I'm very mindful of, of several things. Uh, people are stressed for time and energy and money. So uh, we make things that are simple. I'm, I'm very keen on uh, skillet meals. So you can make everything in one big pot in a skillet. Um, and that you should be done within and eating within 30 minutes of starting. Uh, so that, that this is a manageable uh, amount of effort. Uh, and that we wanted to find things that people could find in a grocery store in rural Iowa. Um, and so uh, that, that was also part of why I, I wrote uh, Cooking the Walls Protocol, Cooking for Life, um, in a uh, format so that I, I, I presumed that people may not know how to cook and that they may be uh, trying to deal uh, with uh, pretty basic uh, grocery stores. This is not exotic five-star chef, exotic ingredient uh, cooking. This is cooking for real people who have real jobs and unhappy kids that they're all trying to accommodate. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, just uh, around the diversity of plant-based foods, if somebody is at that point, and I, I've speak to many people who are literally eating chicken, carrots, and maybe some squash, and that's all they're tolerating at this point in time. Um, and even those foods are reacting to them. How they, they might have heard you say, you know, ideally you get to 200 plant-based foods per annum and they'll be like, you've got to be crazy. There's, like I'm eating three foods. How do I get to 200 different plant-based foods? Like <clears throat> how do you work with people when they're at that super reactive phase? Tea. All sorts of teas, herbal teas, great way to start. Mm. That adds yeah. a tremendous amount of diversity. So uh, that's a very, very easy way to start. Um, and uh, broths, uh, bone broth can be uh, very healing. Uh, so that first month or several months uh, is focused uh, uh, not on many plants, uh, but a lot more on bone broth, uh, uh, bone um, 
And I actually may use more of a ketogenic diet uh, in the beginning. Uh, people with a lot of SIBO uh, do better, may do better uh, in a, a ketogenic diet at first. One of my questions was around fat intake. Um, we're talking about having a, a really broad and diverse and plentiful plant-based um, approach. But what about fats, um, particularly with the ketogenic diet, which has gained in popularity uh, and awareness in recent times, it seems, um, and that promotes a much higher fat intake, um, a very high fat intake indeed. Um, should we all be eating a higher fat diet? Is that Does it only work for some? What's your well, views on the ketogenic so, approach? Um, a ketogenic diet is uh, basically means that our, our mitochondria are burning fat as the fuel to generate energy that we use to run the chemistry of life. And our mitochondria can burn sugar and they could burn uh, protein in the form of amino acids. And the fact that our mitochondria can burn fat, amino acids, or sugar, uh, it gives us a lot of what we call flexibility. That, that, um, that we can burn fat is how we survive famine, war, winter, um, a drought. When, you know, everything's died off and we are living off of our stored fat. That's when uh, we're, we're mobilizing our fat and our mitochondria are burning uh, fat. We have, uh, beginning in the early 1900s, uh, physicians at the Mayo Clinic uh, figured out that if you gave kids uh, a water diet so that they were burning their own fat, their seizures stopped. Uh, and before we had any uh, seizure medications, it was certainly life-saving. And so that, that became a popular approach to get control of seizures for kids, I think about beginning around 1909, um, then Delantin came on the market and this sort of fell out. Um, and then as uh, there was awareness that we're, more and more kids were having seizures, we weren't getting control of the seizures. There were multiple drugs being used. I believe in the 1960s, there was interest uh, came back to going to this ketogenic diet. Uh, and Johns Hopkins figured out that if they gave people a lot of cream and eggs, 90% of the diet coming from uh, fat, and they gave them uh, vitamins, uh, synthetic vitamins, that it was again generated ketones and uh, got rid of the seizures. Uh, and so that the interest grew and began to use ketogenic diets to treat a variety of things, um, seizures, uh, brain cancer, polycystic ovarian disease, Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's. I studied the setting of MS um, and uh, diabetes, fatty liver disease. Uh, there are certainly many, many books written about it. Uh, so there's certainly more recognition that there are health benefits with it. Uh, 
one of the concerns that um, uh, I, I potentially see with uh, ketogenic diets is that it, it changes a bunch of hormonal signals uh, in the body uh, because one of the hormonal signals that, that being ketosis generates is that there's not enough uh, resources um, in terms of protein and sugar. So my hormones are saying, do not reproduce. So we're going to repair the body and try reproduction next year. So that's a really great thing if you have a, a neurodegenerative problem because it, it sends a signal for my brain to get in there and start repairing stuff. If I'm trying to get pregnant, you know, I'm not going to get pregnant, um, although I would not use, use this as your sole method of birth control, by the way. But it certainly de decreases fertility. Uh, it may uh, decrease your um, uh, efficiency at protecting yourself from infection. There's some evidence that infection risks, risk goes up. Um, and there may be uh, changes on your thyroid hormone status. Uh, there's clearly changes on your sex hormone status. So I, I think long-term ketosis, from my mind, there's not a, a really good answer. Um, in terms of uh, what's safe long-term. Many uh, and probably all of the ketogenic diets out there, uh, they've really focused on the macronutrient ratios. That is what percent of fat, protein, carbs. No one is teaching people how to make sure you're getting all the micronutrients that you need to, to maintain nutritional status. I'm the only author that has... You know, even in the in the medical community, I, I'm just just shocked that you know Johns Hopkins created a ketogenic diet. They put people in the hospital to start them on it. They have a very intensive supplement supplementation program, and they monitor the nutritional status because they know the way they've designed the diet is not nutritionally balanced. So they have to really monitor folks. All these books out there for ketogenic diets, uh, no one's really monitored the micronutrient status. So you'll feel great for the first 18 months and then your micronutrients get depleted and your health may begin to deteriorate. Um, so I, I would rather people use my version, which is a more uh, micronutrient replete. Uh, I think there may be a reason to do uh, cyclic ketosis, uh, sort of like winter. So what, what I do is Every winter I go in ketosis, and then during the summer, my berries are coming in, my, vegetable, my vegetables are coming in, and I switch to a low glycemic index diet. I'm, I'm out of ketosis uh, through the summer, and then in fall, I'm back in ketosis again. Mm, it's, I think it's a really great approach to, for people to be thinking about the seasons that, you know, the, the seasons change, the produce changes. So our bodies also change. We're not, 
we, because of our Western approach and our Western diet, we often just eat the same old thing throughout the year, regardless of whether it's truly in season or not. And um, being more in tune with the seasonal fluctuations, um, I think. I, I think it's really much great. better, and I think it's better for us to cycle through foods uh, seasonally. Um, you know, all the plants, the plants we eat are a mixture of compounds that are really, really great for us and that are slightly toxic for us. But the fact that they're slightly toxic for us actually revs up our detoxification pathways uh, and has you know some great benefits. But it's also why diversity in the plants is so incredibly good for us. So kale, I love kale. Kale is great food for us. But you shouldn't eat kale every single day. You should eat kale, and then you should eat beet greens, then you should have turnip greens, then you should have parsley, and you should have spinach, and then come back to kale, and so have a wide variety of greens. Because every plant is a mixture of things that, compounds that are bioactive, that are really, really good for you, and a few compounds that are not quite so good for you. You know, even water, water, is life-saving. But if you drink too much water, you can kill yourself with hyponatremia. And that is probably true for um, the vast majority of the foods that we that uh, we consume. Liver. Liver is really good for us twice a week. But if you have a polar bear liver, it's going to have too much vitamin A and you'll make yourself quite ill, quite, quite ill. So it's all having to do with um, being mindful of the variety and the dose. Something that I do um, to get that diversity and to really work with the seasons is we've got this gorgeous uh, organic um, fruit and veg company here in Melbourne, Australia, and they deliver a box to you every week and they pick what goes in the box because it's all based on what's seasonally available. And I use it as like this surprise, <laughs> this is what I'm cooking. And it's been, it's really great because I, I get vegetables that I wouldn't normally choose. And then it forces me out of my comfort zone, which is a good thing because I love to cook. And then I have these beautiful greens and, and seasonal produce that's all organic and it's just divine and we um, get we don't eat a lot of meat these days but we now source our meat direct from our farmers and we get these boxes of meat that um, it's all completely organic and pasture fed and no antibiotics are used we've even visited a farm to, to you know I've, I'm quite protective of my food so I go and visit the farmers to check they are what they say they are and it's a really lovely way of not only supporting local business but eating um, a good diversity of foods that you know are actually raised or grown in really good ways and uh, it makes me feel better about what I'm putting in my mouth. You know um, and let me uh, add to that Uh, when you think about uh, how you're spending your money Putting your money back into your local community uh, in terms of, you know, I, I, the internet's really convenient, but I'd much rather go spend my money at my local organic grocer uh, in, with the uh, community-sponsored agriculture with the local farmer because I'm reinvesting into my community. And there's, to me, there's no better place to invest than in my community. 
So I, I think what you're describing is uh, just a, a wonderful development. I'm very excited to see that. I encourage everyone to, to think about how to spend as much money as you can in your local community because you're, you're helping your friends, your neighbors, your schools, and you're helping your community thrive. You are definitely, and it feels great to support them. Um, for the person that's listening today that is in the, the bottom of the pit and they're thinking, oh, well, it's very well for, for you, Dr. Walls and Rebecca, uh, you know, you've achieved improved health. I'm nowhere near that. I feel miserable today. I can barely get out of bed. Um, what's your advice to someone that's, you know, back at that point that they're just going, I can, lit- I literally cannot put one foot in front of the other, let alone even think of how I'm going to get 200 different plant-based foods in my diet. You know, it, um, it starts. When I started, um, you know, it was a struggle to walk 10 feet. Uh, I struggled to do my little 10-minute, uh, very tiny little workout. Um uh, But you begin with where you're at. You begin taking what little steps that you you can. I think it can be very, very helpful to reflect on what is it you want your health for. And you may need to sort out, uh, I'm willing to begin the journey now. um, Or that, no, I'm not willing. This is not the right time in my life. Uh, and then come back to this when you are willing to begin taking your first step. Uh, and you, you can sort of think through what are the first steps you want to take. Uh, it might be that your first step is um, adapting a stress-reducing activity uh, and being engaged in prayer and meditation and mindfulness uh, and uh, having greater clarity of your uh, life's purpose. And then maybe the the next step after that is replacing sugar and white flour with vegetables uh, or working on bone broth. Um, But for, for many, the first step is really understanding what is it that you want your health for and having a much clearer understanding of your life's purpose Uh, and the meaning you attach to this journey. When you have clarity then, then you may begin to see how you can start taking the steps. And it doesn't happen all at once. And uh, I was just recently reminded of the the distance I've traveled so far with another condition I have. And and almost just over a year ago, I um, finally got to the core root of why I had quite debilitating back and hip pain and we I finally discovered I have um, a damaged disc at the base of my spine after years and years and years of seeking um, the opinions of many practitioners and no one being able to tell me what it was because my symptoms weren't typical um, and when I I literally kind of stumbled into the the rooms of an osteopath here in Melbourne and in tears in excruciating agony and I said I just need someone to find what's wrong with me and he did and um, he put me onto a rehabilitation program that when I first started 
all I could do was literally just do the movements. I couldn't add any resistance or weights or anything to it. And I could literally do one repetition and then I was done. And I was in, you know, I was crying from extreme pain because it was just overwhelming. I, there was some, um, there's a specialized back rehab place here in Melbourne that I now go to. There were some machines I couldn't even sit on because they triggered the pain, the nerve pain so extremely. So I've been going every week, every single week, twice a week uh, for the last just over 12 months. And not only have I got myself out of pain, but I'm now also able to not only sit in the machines I couldn't even get into a year ago, but I can now use them. And and I was thinking about this the other day as I was sitting on one of these new machines and, you know, and I've got some weight going through it. And I was like, oh my gosh, look at how far I've come. Now it would have felt like it was an insurmountable uh, mountain to climb just over 12 months ago. But because I consistently got up every week and I went and did it and I did my half an hour exercises two or three times a week um, and just did it without, you know, bitching and moaning. But I was like, I've just got to do this. I've just got to invest in my health, in my back and my body to get my pain down because I can't do anything while I'm in excruciating pain. Um, And, you know, fast forward, you know, about 13 months. And here I am today, I can not only, you know, I couldn't even put socks on or put shoes on 12 months ago. And and now I can do all sorts of things. I can lift things and it's, yeah. it's amazing, but it starts with a single step. Yeah. You know, the uh, therapeutic lifestyle clinic uh, that I ran at the VA, the number one reason people came to us was pain. Uh, and so absolutely, um, it, is very integral part of uh, pain management is the dietary part, the stress reduction part, and the rehab exercise part. Uh, and all three of those domains inter- interplay so well at uh, addressing pain. Um, so I, I, I'm thrilled that you've done well. And I, I certainly want to echo for everyone my remarkable recovery. I really, you know, began in um, 2002 when I first started working on making dietary changes. I, and I experimented, I kept at it, uh, tinkering slowly, making adjustments, and just stayed with it paid attention to my response, made adjustments, paid attention to my response, made adjustments, and just stayed with that. And um, all of your listeners hopefully will learn that they need to be their uh, best advocate to pay deep attention to their response, try interventions, see how they respond, and keep tinkering. Because their, their journey will be different than mine. It will be different than, than yours. But it is their journey. And it is their responsibility to go on it and learn and keep making slow progress. And sometimes you'll screw up and you'll lose ground. Like, well, shit, that intervention didn't work out so well. So I'm, you know, I need to do it either more slowly or uh, I need something slightly different. 
but always keep learning and keep being willing to try. Something someone said to me once was um, approach it with interest and intrigue Mm -hmm. and I thought that that was really great because I see myself as a walking science experiment of one and I am interested and intrigued by my body and what it does um, for me, what sometimes it doesn't like when I try new things, but I always come at it with this curiosity rather than fear Uh, because if I do try something and it doesn't work. I then go, well, that was really interesting. It's really interesting that didn't work for me. I'm going to try that again in a, in a month's time, but it didn't work for me today. Okay, thanks for letting me know, buddy. That's fine. I'll, I'll mark that up and, uh, and I'll try again. <laughs> you know, our, as chil- our children are really good at learning, uh, being little scientists, trying things, noticing that works well or doesn't work well and getting rewarded, uh, and we need to be willing to do that. We try stuff, pay attention, it was helpful or not helpful, and just keep being willing to try and pay attention to how you respond. Yeah. Now, we've got uh, some exciting news for the for the listeners in Australia, at least, that you are coming down under in April. I am. For some events, so I'm so excited to be able to share with the listeners of the Healthy Gut Podcast. You'll be here in Melbourne and Sydney, and I've got a really exciting giveaway um, for people to win a ticket to the live streaming event, so make sure you head to the, the show notes page so you can read more about that. But before we finish up, I'd love for you to tell my listeners what your events are here down under. So... I'll be coming, uh, and I'm working with uh, Terry King. Uh, we've been uh, writing up the show. There'll be uh, two shows, um, a show that is uh, sort of focused on general strategies for improving health, reducing symptoms. And the second show is really focused more on teaching people the principles of functional medicine uh, and a more comprehensive approach to autoimmune and really more complex neurological problems. Uh, I, th- I think the shows, uh, it's about two and a half hours. There's a, a potty break in the middle for me because it's a long time for me. Um, I, and they're just going to be fabulous, fun, fun uh, event shows with a lot of teaching and some audience participation, uh, fun activities. Uh, it's going to be very, very fun. So we'll have, and it's lay friendly. Uh, I think I do a lovely job of teaching these complicated uh, concepts in a way that I think are easily understood by uh, the lay public. Um, And then I'm I'm also uh, going up to Sydney and uh, doing a show, the same show uh, in Sydney. Uh, You should have the, the dates in your show notes, but I believe it's April 21st and May 5th. Um, We're also going to have a few days to go have some fun around Melbourne and uh, fun around Sydney uh, and get to see some Australia fair as well. And I'm looking forward to that. Uh, And then there's a clinician event that will be with bioceuticals at the research uh, uh, symposium there. And then I'm uh, also meeting with some uh, of Australia's uh, 
uh, wellness researchers uh, to talk about wellness research at MS. Uh, they asked me if I would meet with them, and uh, so I'm excited about that. Uh, so should be very fun. It's going to be great. I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, it's going to be great to have you out here. Now, for those people that aren't in Australia and won't get to see you in person, or they might be in Australia and still can't see you in person, um, but would love to connect with you, what's the um, ha- what's the best way for people to reach out and uh, and connect with you and, and see more of what you do? So I have a website, terrywalls.com, uh, and that's T-E-R-R-Y, Walls, W-A-H-L-S.com. And there are lots of information. We have resources there to help people learn more, a membership site uh, where you can hear uh, the most current lectures that I've been giving, and there's a two-year curriculum. Um, We have a menu uh, program where people can get uh, menus and shopping lists for a year. Uh, And then I have a in-person three-day seminar and retreat uh, every August that uh, we have people from all over the globe uh, coming to that. We also train clinicians to get certified in the walls protocol. Uh, last year, we had people from six different countries coming, including some Australians, by the way. Um, and I think we have Australians again signing up to come. So um, we sold out last year and I expect that we will sell out again uh, this year as well for that event. So well, lots of Dr. Terry Walls. Yeah, it's been wonderful to have you on the show today and sharing your vast knowledge uh, with my listeners. So thank you so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Thank you. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure. I really hoped you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Terry Walls. I know I have just learned so much from her. If you would like to see the show notes from today's episode, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Terry, and that's T-E-R-R-Y. Now, if you would like to get access to the full transcription of today's show, make sure you sign up as a member of the Healthy Gut podcast. And all you need to do is head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Terry or thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast to sign up. And as soon as you sign up, you'll get access to the transcription. Now, Dr. Terry Walls has offered the Healthy Gut podcast listeners the opportunity to win a ticket to the on-demand stream of her Australian events. We've just had the Melbourne event and the Sydney one is coming up. These tickets are worth $99 each and they are free to help the Healthy Gut podcast members. So, guys, make sure you have signed up Put your name and email address down so that you can go in the draw to win one of these tickets. The recording is yours for a period of 18 months, so you can really make the most of this invaluable information. I attended her Melbourne event and I just got so much out of it. She is such an inspirational woman and she knows so much around the the positive impact that our diet, nutrition and lifestyle can have on our health, particularly when we're dealing with a chronic illness. 
So for everybody that has entered or has signed up to become a Healthy Gut Podcast member by putting their name and email address down, you will go in the draw to be selected at random to win one of the six tickets. And the draw will occur on Thursday, the 26th of April at 5pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Now, guys, don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or the app you use to listen to the show. And I would love it if you could leave a rating and review. Dig Kid gave the podcast five stars and said, I just want to say thanks that this podcast has improved my quality of life on so many levels. I have high methane SIBO. I have been a patient of Dr. Sandberg-Lewis for about a year. Since I first started this podcast up until now, I have learned so much. It's crazy. Every podcast I learn something new and I have so many aha moments. It's a great tool in anyone's journey through SIBO or gut healing. I don't think I'd be where I am in my healing process today without Rebecca's help. Thank you so much, Dig Kid, for leaving that review. It just warms my heart so much that this podcast has helped you. And don't forget, guys, if if you've got some feedback on the podcast or you'd like to tell others why you find the podcast so helpful, make sure you leave a rating and review. And you can always follow me on and the podcast and the Healthy Gut on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google Plus. Just look for Rebecca Coombs and the Healthy Gut. Coming up on next week's show, we have Dr. Megan Taylor joining us and she'll be talking all about visceral hypersensitivity and pain. Us SIBOers can feel more pain, we can be more prone to pain. So Dr. Taylor and I talk about why that is, what's happening in our bodies when we're reacting badly to pain and what we can do about it. I can't wait to to be back with you next week, guys, talking about that with Dr. Megan Taylor. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.